And now, The Federal Drive with Tom Temin. Hello, and thanks for joining us on this Monday, July 17th, 2023, seven minutes past the hour. I'm Tom Temin. Our producers are Eric White and Peter Masurlian, our digital editors Daisy Thornton and Darris Lauderdale. Coming up in this hour of The Federal Drive, Customs and Border Protection turns to special hiring authorities to recruit investigators. Plus, a group of VA nurses sounds the alarm on a new patient practice. Those stories and much more ahead during this hour of The Federal Drive. But first, a coalition of federal manager advocacy groups urges the White House and Congress to fix what they say is a systemic problem with federal pay. It's called pay compression. It affects those at the upper ranks of the federal career employees. They aren't legally allowed to earn more than appointees, and Congress won't give them a raise. Federal News Network's Drew Friedman joins me with the latest. And, Drew, just walk us through the details of pay compression. This is something that comes up from time to time, but it seems to be getting worse as the years progress. Right, Tom. It it is, as you said, it's because there is a pay cap for political appointees, which are employees work for the government, but they're on the executive schedule. So those at level four and above are under a pay cap. And because of the way the um, statute is set, that impacts employees on the general schedule and kind of those upper levels. So usually about GS-15 is when you start seeing that what they call pay compression start to hit. And this does depend on you know, where the GS employees work and their spot exactly on the federal career ladder. But it's been an issue for several years. And as you said, it is something that gets a little bit worse every year as other employees on the general schedule who are lower down continue to get these annual federal pay raises. In other words, if, say, Gina Raimondo at Commerce is making, I don't know what they earn off the top of my head, but say $200,000, let's say, that means the highest paid career person there can't make more than $199,999.99. Yeah, that's pretty much what the problem is. And that's why this coalition is kind of bringing this up now. And what are they specifically saying? They're saying that pay compression, as I said, it's become worse and it's something that they're now saying needs a solution, needs a fix. It's something that the Biden administration back in March when they released their 2024 budget proposal, they hinted at the idea of fixing pay compression. It was specifically mentioned in the budget. But so far, we haven't seen any proposal or any specific legislation following that initial just hinting at this pay compression fix. So now you have groups, a coalition of manager advocacy groups for federal managers saying, you know, where is this proposal? And they they want to see more from the Biden administration. And they're saying generally that the Federal Salary Council and the president's pay agent just aren't doing enough to address these more systemic issues. So even though they say it's a good thing that there have been for example, new pay locality areas that are going to be added in 2024, most likely, that's not enough to address these deeper rooted issues with the way the general schedule is set up. Yes, you do see agencies turning more and more to different narrowly applied authorities to, say, give their data officers or their chief technology officers or the CIOs more money. But, you know, that's a process they have to go through and it doesn't really apply across the board. I guess the administration could do several things or propose several things. It could prevail on Congress to raise the cap on politicals, and therefore the everybody else could follow in the wake. Or they could say, 
let's just eliminate that provision that you can't make more than a political if you're a career. But nothing has come out yet from that promise of a proposal. Right. There's nothing yet that we've seen. OMB hasn't released any sort of way to specifically address this, even though it is something that the president's pay agent, which is this three-person panel from the Office of Personnel Management, OMB, and then the Labor Department, they've said in many reports across many years that Federal pay is an issue that there need to be major legislative reforms, but so far, you know, no one's made that specific proposal. And I think now we're getting a lot more frustration from the voices of advocacy groups. And one of those groups is the Senior Executives Association. And I spoke to Jason Breifel, who's their director of policy and outreach, to hear more. The, the president's pay agent has written reports to the president for 20 years saying doesn't make sense and doesn't work. I read 20 years of those reports. You get to a certain point where it doesn't even matter if it's a Democrat or a Republican in the White House. They both are saying that the process in the system doesn't work, is, is leaving certain employees behind, and needs to be revisited. And yet we seem like we're in this never-ending carousel ride where somebody is just pointing to the person to the left of them, but nobody ever does the hard work, and comes up with a proposal. Well, I admire his intestinal fortitude for being able to read 20 years of pay agent reports, but this is more than just someone would like a better salary for themselves. There are larger effects here, aren't there? Right. I think the, the one of the questions is that there is this wage gap between the private sector and the public sector. So it's been federal sector wages have trailed the private sector for at least a decade, and that's according to data from the Bureau of Labor Statistics. And, you know, others say that the general schedule in general, that whole pay system is just completely outdated and needs to be revamped or just removed, changed. And a lot of these bigger, deeper questions that you can kind of look at. But so far, as you said, there's more of these piecemeal changes for specific groups of employees that are getting these pay raises, but that also can bring more complications with it. So it's just this big question where I think you're getting a lot more groups and people who are following this asking, you know, where's where's the answer? Where's this proposal from the Biden administration after they said that it was part of their plan in the budget proposal? Now there's a coalition. They have notified the Labor Department, the White House, OPM with what they want. What's going to happen next, if anything, Drew? The Government Managers Coalition, or GMC, that's the name of this coalition of federal managers groups. They said that they're eagerly awaiting the proposal from the Biden administration. Again, they do say, you know, thanks to OPM for uh, putting out these new locality pay changes and that sort of proposal there. And that is a good step, but that there need to be these larger reforms. One part of the question here, though, is at least for pay compression, there would be a pretty significant cost to fix, to go back and add those pay step increases for the GS-15 employees and others. So there is that bigger question. But Jason Breifel from SEA said it's going to be important to look at those numbers regardless. The data and the facts about that need to be put on the table so we can have a rational conversation about what do we do about all that. But just being afraid that the number is big and knowing that agencies can't do anything with it is still no justification for the lack of leadership that we're seeing. If you read these like reports from the page, uh, you can see a trend from administration to administration year to year. They're like, man, this system's crazy. Somebody really needs to propose a better system here. Who are these folks waiting on to come up with a plan? Good question.
It is a good question. And, you know, I think maybe we'll see some response from the Biden administration here. But for the time being, it's it's just a waiting game to see what proposal they're going to come up with. Federal News Network's Drew Friedman. Thanks so much. Thank you. And be sure to check out her story at federalnewsnetwork.com. Still to come, a group of VA nurses sounds the alarm on a new patient practice. This is The Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Welcome back to The Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Network. Registered nurses at the VA's Cincinnati Medical Center recently staged a public protest, an informational picket, over what they say is a new and unsafe practice. They say veterans will become collateral damage and put their own nurses' licenses at risk. Here with the details, a nurse and a member of the National Nurses United, Eric Cromer. Mr. Cromer, good to have you with us. Thank you. Appreciate you having me on your show. Tell us what is the practice that the VA Medical Center in Cincinnati wants to institute that you feel would be harmful? Well, the practice that you're speaking of and that we had the informational picket about was changing the way that medications are administered by the staff. So the sickest patients go to the ICU because they need the most critical oversight, you know, the, the most constant assessments, things of that nature. And therefore, the medications that are given in those ICU require special level training. They require a lot of oversight and a lot of special, you know, labs and things that have to be looked at. Those medications should only, and those patients should only be in ICU. The Cincinnati VA wants to change the policy where certain medications that pertain to, as I just mentioned, would be on a med surge floor with a nurse that's got five patients and may be off the floor for a certain amount of time, and it's just an unsafe practice. And that was what that informational picket was about, along with so many other issues that are everything so heavy-handed here. And we'll get to some of those issues, but just to clarify, these would take the patients out of the ICU that would otherwise have been receiving their medications in the ICU and having them receive those medications in a situation where there would be many more patients per nurse to supervise. Correct. Absolutely. And why do they say they're doing that? Well, they don't see an issue in it. We actually sat down initially with them, myself and one of the other union members here, and uh, we voiced concern along with the pharmacist and the doctors who told us privately, the pharmacist publicly, that those medications do not belong on a med surge floor. Why they're doing it, we don't know. We've pointed out that it's unsafe, that it takes more oversight. It seems like they just hear that it takes more nurses and that we're just looking to have more staff, but we're trying to fight for the veterans so they get the highest and best quality care. And they trust us. You know, the veterans trust us with their care, and we want to be good stewards of that trust. And it's a violation of their own policy. Their own national policy is what is so puzzling about this. Uh, You can actually look in their database, but here in Cincinnati, they believe that they can just do it their own way. And you said there's some other issues between the management of that center and the registered nurses that's underlying all this also. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Back in May, we had a very peaceful meeting. There was a group of us, about 12 of us, that went to the director's office or conference room, knocked on the door. We were invited in by her, and we were asking about a flexible schedule that we had been promised well over a year ago. 
We had about a 10-minute meeting. We felt it was productive. All the nurses went back to work after that. Two days after that, we all got subpoenas from the federal police that we were being investigated. Not only being investigated, but we were read our Miranda rights. The police that we went ahead and cooperated with the federal police, uh, they did the investigation and sent it to the U.S. attorney. The U.S. attorney didn't see anything that was the grounds for, you know, any illegal action because it was, you know, of course, protected concerted union activity. And the uh, local administration here still is calling upon different nurses to investigate them and, and just attempts to silence us and disintimidate any advocacy at all that we're trying to do for our veterans. I mean, we're just here for the veterans, and you know, it's our job to advocate for us. And they get the best care here, the veterans do. And it's like, uh, we want the same thing. We should want the same things, but it just doesn't seem like the management here at Cincinnati VA wants that. We're speaking with Eric Cromer. He's a registered nurse at the Cincinnati VA Medical Center and a representative to National Nurses United. And when you went to the office, I mean, did you come with noises and placards or something, or was it a scheduled meeting? It was a, um, we call it an action, which it's called a march on the boss, and it's just a way to get the attention of the boss, which in this case was a director, Jane Johnson. She was there with her co-director, Chris Schreigard. We just wanted to make them aware that our nurses were very concerned because, you know, they had been promised this flexible schedule for well over a year and uh, it had been put off and put off and it just had gotten to the point where it was apparent that they were just not going to do it. And so when you do something of this nature, you know, you just do it so they can see that this is what's causing your nurses to be upset. You know, we want to attract the best nurses and we want to keep the best nurses because registered nursing, there is a shortage around in this country. So we do need to do everything we can to keep the highest and best talent that these veterans deserve. And with respect and to this, that flexible schedule, what would change in your work life relative to how it is now? It would make it better. In the private sector, most nurses, they prefer 12-hour shifts. They do what's called a compressed schedule, so they work 72 hours. In the federal sector, they do 80 hours. Now, they're about half the VAs across the country, they already do this, and it works out great. The actual productivity goes up. The absenteeism goes down. The overtime goes down. It basically lets the nurse have the same schedule as in the private sector where they work 72 hours and they get paid for 80. So it's a great retention tool. We've had many people that stayed just because they were promised this a year ago. We've had people that were promised this and they took a job here and they haven't been given it yet. So that extra day would mean a lot to so many. I mean, with child care and, and, and with job, you know, burnout retention. And it helps you care for the veteran better because a happy nurse is going to provide better quality care as well. And that's 72 hours in a two-week federal pay yes. period, in other words. Well, I yes, guess sir. to the yes. uninitiated, it sounds like if you have 80 hours of pay, why should you work 72 hours? How does that work in the private sector? Yeah, in the private sector, there's all sorts of different scenarios. I mean, I know there's like they have a weekend option where some nurses will only work weekends and they'll get paid for the same amount of hours because the weekends are undesirable. So, I mean, there's all sorts of flexible options in the private sector that they use to recruit and retrain nurses. This 72 for 80, what we're talking about, was something that was actually passed in Congress 
to retain RNs, and I think it goes back to like 2012 or something, the actual statute that was passed. But it is one of the tools that the VA is given to retain and keep the nurses. Right. So it's optional for a given center to do the 72 for 80. That's correct. That's correct. And, and right now, I think we have about over half of the VAs around the country do it. And there's all sorts of studies that come out as far as like, you know, the benefits of it and what, you know, created this concern, you know, as far as this meeting was it was actually promised to the nurses here at the Cincinnati VA uh, via a town hall meeting Chris Rygard gave well over a year ago. So once he said, hey, look, we're looking at getting the 72 for 80 out for you guys. And this was in the midst of, you know, when so many nurses were leaving and they were going to travel agencies and things like that. Um, you know, this was something that was stated in a town hall meeting to try to keep nurses from leaving and to bring new nurses on. So it was promised, and, uh, you know, a lot of people got very excited about it. And, uh, you know, here we are so many months later, and we're still waiting. Right. And getting back to the policy with respect to the patients moving out of the ICU, what is the status mm-hmm. of that? And are they moving ahead with it or is it in limbo at um, this point? As far as I know, they have not changed their mind on it. I just spoke with my director. She said as far as she knows, she didn't get any information. In the beginning, they were actually doing the right thing. And because, you know, anytime you have a change in work, you're supposed to sit down with the union And they actually did sit down with us, but when they saw that, you know, the union was not going to be on board with putting our veterans at risk, they decided not to talk to us and use a clause, a very cowardly clause called 7422, which basically says that they don't have to negotiate with us because it's outside of the negotiating parameters. Right. So it's a potential at this point, but they haven't actually pulled the trigger on it. Correct. We're hoping that by bringing the concerns to the public and by, you know, letting people know that if they bring their loved ones here, that, you know, they could be at risk, that, you know, maybe they'll rethink it because, you know, it's it's something that I would not want to put anyone I love on a floor with not the proper trained RNs and staff to care for someone being on one of these drugs that, you know, regulate your heartbeat, essentially, or life-saving uh, temporary medications. Eric Cromer is a nurse at the Cincinnati VA Medical Center and a member of National Nurses United. Thanks so much for joining me. Thank you. I appreciate you uh, taking the time to take this call and and to uh, listen to our concerns. We'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Subscribe to the Federal Drive wherever you get your podcasts. Still to come, the defense authorization bill for 2024 becomes a dartboard for peevish lawmakers. But first, Customs and Border Protection turns to special hiring authorities to recruit investigators. This is The Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Welcome back to The Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Network. Customs and Border Protection is adding more criminal investigators to its Office of Professional Responsibility, the office in charge of investigating serious misconduct allegations by CBP staff. The office also reviews use of force and critical incidents like in-custody deaths. The agency is using several hiring tools, and for how it's going, Federal News Network's Eric White spoke with the executive director of investigative operations, Dan Altman. Within U.S. Customs and Border Protection, the only office that employs criminal investigators is the Office of Professional Responsibility. 
And most people might associate uh, OPR with what would be a traditional internal affairs role within a law enforcement agency, investigating allegations of administrative or criminal misconduct on the part of our employees. But we also have a vital role to review incidents that bring into question the transparency and accountability of CBP, such as in-custody deaths, use of force incidents, vehicle pursuits with serious injuries, employee deaths, and other incidents that garner public attention and concern. And so our special agents have really two roles. One is to investigate serious misconduct, and the other is to review these incidents and provide credible and transparent investigations explaining to the public what happened in those instances. So it's more of, you know, CBP is a law enforcement agency, and so this is just sort of a a way of keeping track of um, any incidents that occur, you know, like you mentioned, uh, while people are in custody and things of that nature? Yeah, so I think most people don't realize that U.S. Customs and Border Protection is actually America's largest law enforcement agency with over 40,000 uniformed personnel conducting enforcement operations around the clock in just about every environment you can imagine. Consequently, um, there are going to be instances in which people make allegations that our personnel have fallen short of the um, very high expectations we have for them. And when those instances occur, we investigate them aggressively. Um, if the allegations are not true, then we will you know, uh, clear our employees. And in the instance the allegations are true, we will either take uh, strict uh, administrative action against them or present those cases for prosecution. And in addition to that, because CBP has such a dynamic enforcement mission, there are instances when we have serious incidents involving either enforcement operations or persons in custody. So our highly trained special agents are able to respond to those things on a moment's notice, sometimes at very remote locations, to make sure that we look through those things in a really thorough manner. So the desire is to hire at least 300 more. Um, is there a backlog of investigations that, need, that, are, that has occurred, or um, is there a deficiency? How did the number 300 come about? Yeah, so, so as America's largest law enforcement agency, there's a really strong need for oversight within CBP. And the Department of Homeland Security is one of the newest cabinet agencies within the U.S. government, and U.S. Customs and Border Protection is also a very new agency. And over the 20-year history of our organization, the type of oversight that's been provided has evolved. About six or seven years ago, there became a really clear realization that CBP itself required a very robust oversight mechanism. And so there was a recommendation made by the Homeland Security Advisory Council that CBP's Office of Professional Responsibility be staffed with about 550 special agents. And so our hiring initiative now to bring about 300 additional agents on board will get us to that recommended level that we realized we needed so many years ago. So we feel extremely fortunate to have the confidence and the resources available to be able to really plus up our organization, get ourselves to the place where we're going to be able to provide the type of oversight that's needed. Got it. So it wasn't a a, a case of more responsibilities for CBP and the agency getting larger itself, or did that actually come into play when those recommendations were made? Yeah, so when the initial recommendation was made to plus up our oversight capabilities to 550 special agents back in 2016, it did, in fact, take into account the size of the agency. What it did not necessarily take into account are sort of the enhanced expectations around transparency and accountability, which are really being expected of all law enforcement agencies at this point. And so in addition to our traditional internal affairs function of investigating misconduct, whether it be criminal or serious administrative misconduct, we're also using those new positions to provide uh, really aggressive oversight 
on other types of incidents that might happen, including in-custody deaths, use of force incidents, or other situations that are of concern. Dan Altman is Executive Director of Investigative Operations for the Office of Professional Responsibility at Customs and Border Protection. So let's talk hiring. What methods are you all going to use to fill these openings and who exactly are you looking for? You have an investigative background yourself. Is that the kind of person that you're trying to find? Yeah, so when you're building an investigative organization, diversity is really critical. And I mean diversity in every respect, starting with a diversity of perspective, diversity of experience, visual diversity, diversity of language capabilities. And so as we build out this oversight organization, we're trying to use as many different hiring mechanisms as we can to get the most most diverse uh, workforce possible. So starting with trying to use our traditional recruitment met- uh, methods, which would include just vacancy announcements on, U- on OPM's USA Jobs website, but we've also had specific vacancy announcements that are targeting recent college graduates. And most recently, um, CBP has been granted direct hire authority by the Office of Personnel Management, which gives us a lot more agility in terms of how we can recruit for these positions. And so what we're attempting to do is build a workforce that's balanced between people that have worked for CBP and its operational components in the past that have that really critical technical knowledge that we need to be able to successfully conduct our organization, but also bring in people from the outside that have experience conducting homicide investigations, sexual assault investigations, that have experience doing crime scene processing, procurement fraud, or may speak a language or have a certain cultural background that's essential for us to be effective in our operations. And so as we build that workforce out, we're really trying to keep diversity uh, at the forefront. And uh, we're excited about this new direct hire authority. We think it's going to give us the ability to really build that diverse workforce we're looking for. With such a unique mission for CBP, I imagine the the training to investigate CBP officers would require some sort of special training. Uh, what are they looking at if the new hire is onboarded? Yeah, so uh, first of all, all federal criminal investigators will complete the criminal investigator training program at the Federal Law Enforcement Training Center in Glencoe, Georgia. That's going to give them that basic uh, core criminal investigative skills. And then we supplement that with a six-week OPR special agent training program, which is held at CBP's Advanced Training Center in Harpers Ferry, West Virginia. And during that program, they get advanced training in cognitive interviewing, sexual assault investigations, death investigations, report writing, and other topics that are really essential for them to be successful in their job. And then beyond that, we have special agents that specialize in areas such such as protective operations, procurement fraud, crime scene processing. And so those folks will go on for even more advanced training. So some of the folks we've hired in the last 18 months have undergone more than seven or eight months of initial training and advanced training to get them ready to do this job. What can you tell me about a a personnel investigation? I know that investigations differ depending on the allegation made or the crime committed. But, you know, you mentioned the example of internal affairs. Is the relationship between CBP officers and OPR kind of like that? You know, I I imagine that it's not quite as contentious as TV makes it out to be with uh, cop shows. But um, what can you tell me about what goes into these investigations? Yeah, so first and foremost, OPR is structurally independent within CBP. So what that means is that our investigative framework falls outside of the chain of command of the operational components that we investigate. And so when we receive an allegation of employee misconduct, um, we would conduct that investigation like any other administrative or criminal investigation. So our special agents will identify what potential violation might have been committed. They will develop an investigative plan 
to determine whether or not that violation was committed. And ultimately, we'll reach a conclusion as to whether or not we believe that the offense was committed. If we're talking about a criminal violation, we would be consulting with the United States Attorney's Office very early in the investigation. Some investigations are very simple. It just involves conducting a few interviews, reviewing emails, other sorts of documents. And in some investigations that we conduct, such as public corruption investigations, it could involve surveillance, undercover operations, technical operations, and ultimately a fairly complex uh, chain of events that, that would ultimately help us resolve the allegation. Got it. And you mentioned the direct hire. You're hoping that'll speed things up. What kind of timeline are you all looking at? Have you made any hires yet? We're really excited. We're more than halfway through our hiring goal of bringing these new folks on board. And as we've uh, been moving through the process, I think the word is spread about the uh, opportunities at OPR. And so consequently, we're getting a lot of applications now for our positions. And so um, we're really just going through in a very intentional way, making sure that we're picking people that have the right skills and background that we're looking for for our organization. So we're very hopeful that we'll be able to make the majority of the the hiring offers for the new positions in the next uh, several months. Dan Altman is Executive Director of Investigative Operations for the Office of Professional Responsibility at Customs and Border Protection. Speaking with Federal News Network's Eric White. Find this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive, and be sure to subscribe to the Federal Drive wherever you get your podcasts. Still to come, the defense authorization bill for 2024 becomes a dartboard for peevish lawmakers. This is the Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Welcome back to The Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Network. An extended hold on military promotions by a Republican senator is distorting talks over the national defense authorization bills. Now, the House narrowly passed its version late last week, but what it passed doesn't look to fly in the Senate. And that's not all bothering Congress these days. We get the outlook from WTOP Capitol Hill correspondent Mitchell Miller. And Mitchell, let's talk about the House bill. What are some of the barbs in there that are just not going to get the Senate to swallow? Well, this was another high-wire political act for House Speaker Kevin McCarthy and the Republican conference needing to wrangle those conservative members to join with the more moderates. And before diving into the politics of this, I should note it includes a 5.2% pay increase for military personnel. That's the largest in decades, and it would raise the pay of entry-level military men and women to historic highs. Now, as for how this moves forward, as you alluded to, very complicated. Members of that conservative House Freedom Conference were pleased that they were able to offer up a slew of amendments, but the one that stands out in terms of getting this passed by the Senate, and really it's a major roadblock to getting it passed in the Senate, is an amendment which prohibits the Pentagon from reimbursing military personnel for traveling for an abortion. It does not actually pay for the abortion procedure itself. That is the issue that has caused Alabama Republican Tommy Tuberville to continue to put a hold on those hundreds of military officers' promotions in the Senate, and it's clearly going to be an issue that will have to be worked out as the Senate works on its version of the NDAA. And as you know, this has always passed one of the only things that actually passes on time in Congress. It's done this for more than six decades in a row, but Right now, it's really unclear what the path forward is. You had Senator Tuberville speaking with Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin last week, and they're supposed to speak again this week. But again, it's not clear how it's going to get resolved. And then there are also all these other hot-button issues in this House legislation. Among them, in addition to this abortion issue, there are issues related to LGBTQ and whether there can be any kind of medical care or psychological assistance.
assistance for people that are involved in transitions. There's also a major provision that would essentially take out the diversity quotient, if you will, within the Pentagon uh, in trying to address issues related to race relations. Uh, Basically, Republicans say that this is another critical race theory and that they accuse Democrats of trying and the Pentagon of trying to make it a woke military. Democrats are fiercely opposed to this. They say that the Republicans really don't have a definition for what this is. So as you can see here, you have a big stew brewing then with the Democratic-controlled Senate getting ready to take this bill. It's really going to take some work now to see what's going to happen and finally get it across the finish line. So about the only thing they do agree on is, besides some of the numbers that are authorized, the 5.2% pay raise that they do have unanimity on. They do. And overall, you know, the bill, when it came out of the House Armed Services Committee, it was actually passed on a 58 to 1 vote. But then because of this tenuous situation that we've talked about for months in connection with the House Speaker and the conservatives within his conference, he decided that it would be better to just let them put out all of these amendments out on the floor and see where things landed. Now, it did pass. Again, it was narrow, but he got the votes that he needed, 219 to 210. But then that sets up this big collision with the Senate. And even though they're very similar in terms of the numbers, as you noted, there are these hot button issues that I think are going to cause uh, some real problems as this moves forward. And by the way, that 219 to 210 means there are a few Democrats in the House that did vote for it. That's right. There were four Democrats that actually voted for it and four Republicans that voted against it. And while that may not seem like a lot when you consider the fact that Speaker McCarthy can only afford to lose four votes in his conference if he loses five and doesn't get any support from Democrats, then something can't pass. And so there was actually some nervousness headed before this vote because a lot of people were wondering after this has passed for decades, as I mentioned, was it really possible that it might not pass? Pass. And there was some talk about that in the days leading up to the vote. But Speaker McCarthy proudly stepped up to the microphone after the vote and said, hey, to reporters, you were all asking me these questions about whether or not this was going to pass. It passed. And then he talked about the policies and, and really touted that pay hike, basically trying to jab the Democrats and say, why would you vote against a pay hike for military personnel? We're speaking with Mitchell Miller, Capitol Hill correspondent for WTOP. So we'll see how that plays in the Senate. And they've got some time, but it's going to be interesting. There are other issues. One was that Government Accountability Office report that came out, something of a blockbuster last week, with respect to how little occupied all of this federal space is, not just in Washington, but in other cities also. And so lawmakers are wondering, you know, why are we paying for all this leased space? Yeah, this is a real eye-opener, I think, for a lot of members of Congress. I mean, we've talked about over the past several months about this whole issue about how many people were actually going back to their federal offices. And then this GAO report drops saying essentially that out of those federal buildings, they are only at a quarter occupancy in many of them. In fact, the GAO found that 17 agencies were at or below 25% occupancy. And that, as you might imagine, really riled up some of the lawmakers that found out about this report. It came up in one of the subcommittees, the House Economic Development, Public Buildings, and Emergency Management Subcommittee. And among those who were highly critical is the chairman of that subcommittee, Scott Perry of Pennsylvania. He just said, you've got to be using your space. And he says, basically, that Republicans are going to push these agencies and try to, as he said, we're going to try to help them do it. And he doesn't mean help in a good way. So I think you're going to see 
a lot more attention on this issue, even though there have been, you know, issues, as you've noted with Federal News Network over the years that there have been problems with this and whether or not they were really filled buildings now, uh, especially in the wake of the pandemic, I think this is going to get a lot more attention. Right. So no legislation at this point actually specifically proposed, but it sounds like they could get at it through maybe appropriations and say, well, your rent allowance is 25 percent of what it was last year. Right. Because we've already seen this actually with the FBI. A lot of Republicans have said that they need to take away the funding from the FBI so it won't move to its new headquarters. In fact, there's even a new proposal from Jim Jordan of Ohio, the chairman of the House Judiciary Committee, who wants to move it to Alabama in an existing building, saying that that could save money. Obviously, that's getting a lot of pushback from Virginia and Maryland lawmakers in the Washington region because they're still battling to see whether it could be relocated either in Northern Virginia or in Prince George's County. But yeah, I think you're just going to see lawmakers really getting a lot more micromanaging on these issues related to federal buildings, because let's face it, if a building is 75% empty and the government is paying all the money, whether they own it, they lease it or whatever the situation is, uh, it's just going to come under a lot more scrutiny from lawmakers. Yes, because if they own the building, and of course in the D.C. area, well, other cities too, then it's easier to consolidate. Right. Say, well, you know what? You're going to I mean, there are shared uses of federally owned buildings as it is now. So that's not an unknown thing to do, but maybe they can force a little bit more in. I guess the universal constant that no one can quite figure out besides gravity and the uh, and the the, uh, preservation of energy is the traffic in Washington is horrible and nobody's going to work. So. Right. I know. That's really the conundrum, isn't it? That I've just spoken with people anecdotally, and they say that the traffic has continued to get worse. And yet, if you look at a lot of these figures about how many people are actually working in these federal buildings, you know, five days a week, much less three, it's obviously a lot less than it used to be. So it's an interesting situation. And the FBI generally is kind of getting roughed up, one over its headquarters debate. And then that wonderful quaff of Director Ray kind of got mussed up a little bit in that Judiciary Committee hearing. You've seen a lot of these kinds of hearings. This was one of the roughest on an agency official you've seen. Yes, I could not recall an incident where or a hearing where the FBI director, in this case, Christopher Ray, got just battered like a pinata during the entire hearing. And it was all from Republicans. It was really an interesting reversal. You know, years ago, you used to have Democrats criticizing the FBI for doing various things in terms of internal investigations and looking after people on the left. Now you have it totally flipped in the other direction and Republicans very skeptical of what the FBI is doing, asking about how it's handling the FISA requests, still going back to issues related to former President Trump and, of course, the more recent investigation related to Mar-a-Lago and the classified documents at the former president's home. And throughout this hearing, I will say that the FBI director did keep his cool. He knew he was in for a really long hearing. In fact, it was broken up in half, and then they came back again and then just started beating up on him again. And he did at one point say... You know, I am known for being a relatively low-key guy, and I tried to lead by example, but he said, don't mistake this for a lack of spine and my defense of the agency. Maybe Mr. Ray and John Kerry could get on Mrs. Hines's jet and fly off somewhere and commiserate <laughs> for the weekend. Right. <laughs> Mitchell Miller is Capitol Hill correspondent for WTOP. As always, thanks so much. You bet. Find this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive and hear the Federal Drive on demand. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. 
The Marine Corps might no longer have tanks, but it does want fresh technology tailored to its unique requirements. The Marine Innovation Unit provides one way for the service to develop technology specific to the needs of an expeditionary force. Federal News Network's Alexandra Lohr talked about the unit's priorities with the head of MIU's Defense Engagement Branch, Lieutenant Colonel Eric Chase. It really began with with an assumption that if we weren't bound by you know traditional structure, MOSs, ranks, we could create something unique, a uniquely constituted pool of talent in the reserve force that could be tapped into quickly to help the Marine Corps accelerate to the operating paradigm that's envisioned in Force Design 2030 and to help address specific challenges in making that transition and getting to that future vision. You know, this isn't just a technology adoption problem as we think about Force Design 2030. This is a people challenge. It's a talent management challenge. It's about process. It's about concepts of operation. It's doctrine. It's training. It's strategy. Uh, We've deliberately organized and staff the unit to be able to work across these challenges holistically uh, with FD 2030 as the, the North Star. And so is it a lot of reservists or are people transferring in for two years to work on something and then going back to their units? We fall into a traditional SMCR, Select Marine Corps Reserve structure that spans the gamut of kind of traditional reservists, so to speak. But we also have reservists that have been activated on on short tour orders. What sort of projects do you work on? Tell me a little bit about the kinds of things you do. I'll give you two examples. The, The Marine Corps, as we've been thinking about the future operating environment, you know, I'm sure you've you've heard a lot about retooling and rethinking what Marine regiments could look like in the future. And, And we have these Marine regiments focused on operating in and around the littorals, right? MLRs, Marine Littoral Regiments. One requirement that popped out of this experimentation was a potential need for small craft. So this this small craft watercraft requirement uh, was something that MIU got involved with. And, you know, in working by, with, and through the Marine Corps Warfighting Lab, as well as the Defense Innovation Unit, MIU provided input into a roadmap for how these capabilities could potentially support the total force, potentially support experimentation around these Marine Corps littoral regiments, uh, and vis-a-vis some non-traditional acquisition methods, MIU helped accelerate the project from ideation to commercial solicitation in under five months. And I think that was one example where MIU, with its partners, in this case, the Marine Corps Warfighting Lab and DIU, was able to leverage the talent that we have in-house in terms of, of acquisition professionals, project managers, technical experts, and really accelerate this project from a concept, from an idea to an actual commercial solicitation in a relatively short span of time. That's one example. Okay. Another example, I've mentioned the Marine Corps Warfighting Lab. We were brought in to help them kind of retool and rethink how does their S&T, science and technology process, look? How does it cut through its organization, its missions, and developing a flexible process roadmap to drive alignment across the organization in terms of its mission set, its investment strategy, and those are all all the, the common thread across these efforts is 
it links back to the driving assumption that underpinned the Marine Innovation Unit. Do you have reservists come to you and say, hey, I've got a really great idea. I'd like to work on this. And then they work with MIU to do that? People, and specifically the active duty component, are coming to us with ideas and requests every day, multiple times a day. The the demand signal for what MIU is doing is is quite strong. We have a process in place. And, you know, remember, we have these lines of operation that are the lens in which we, we look at how we are going to expend our resources to ensure that they're aligned with the priorities of the Marine Corps. But fundamentally, what, what we do with that demand signal is, is assuming there is a champion, assuming there is a sponsor for this problem set that we would ostensibly work on, we bring that in-house, we triage it, we have a process to triage it, and we ask ourselves you know, several questions in terms of whether we, MIU, can deliver a real impact, deliver real value for, for our customer, what it'll take to deliver that value in terms of resources and time, and then assuming that we're able to check those boxes, we have the capacity and the capability to deliver real value. And it's something that will have an impact in that specific organization or the broader institution. We develop a plan to execute it. We execute. And then we do what I think is probably the most important part of that process, which is assess. How did we do? What did we deliver? Does it have a measurable impact? And and how can we do better the next time? In terms of what's next right now, I'm, I'm sure you saw that we just achieved IOC, right? You know, initial operating capability. We're about to transition to FOC, full operating capability here this fall. We are, we are onboarding our third cohort of individuals. Uh, we'll be integrating and training those folks up in Newburgh, New York, later this summer in the August timeframe. And as we think about integrating that next cohort, as we think about transitioning from IOC to FOC, we're really going to be moving from building this plane and flying it, quite frankly, flying and building to to flying. So we're going to be transitioning into an execution mode going into FY24. But keep in mind, Alexandra, we have been executing and delivering value to customers Basically, since the inception of MIU, right now, we are working on somewhere in the neighborhood of of 100 engagements, ranging, you know, in different states of of completion across each one of our lines of operation. Lieutenant Colonel Eric Chase of the Marine Innovation Unit, speaking with Federal News Network's Alexandra Lohr. Check out Alex's story at federalnewsnetwork.com. This is The Federal Drive with Tom Temin. For the latest updates, stay with federalnewsnetwork.com or follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn. I'm Tom Temin. 